Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Today, Avram and I are talking about Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We're going to take a look at family conflict. We're going to look a little bit at Cameron's character and um, whether or not yelling at your parents is ever really worth it. Uh, We're jumping in a little bit mid-conversation as I was setting up the Zoom, but I thought what we were um, going over before we started was important uh, to the conversation itself. So we're sort of jumping in midway. Here we go. We just went live. It just connected, so we're okay. Okay. So I, I was going to say, um, if yeah. you know, if, uh, if a child accuses a parent of um, "you effed up my life," blah blah right. blah blah blah, how exactly do you respond to that? Because parents get very defensive, of course. And so I thought that would be an interesting thing. And if we have time, um, the the bit about marriage, about um, <laughs> I'll give you two reasons why I'm not going to get married: my mother and my father. And maybe we can look at that. So that's okay. what I had on my plate. I mean. Any uh, thoughts from your end? Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. I think it's great. I think, you know, I was thinking about how Ferris and Cameron are in so many ways opposites to each other, right? Like spy one and spy two. So, you know, Ferris is seen as perfect and loved by his parents, but like maniacally manipulative. And Cameron is so like without um, artifice and yet, and yet his parents hate him and they ignore him. You know, so it's kind of these really, it's this this weird opposition, these two characters. And, and that's, I just think that's so interesting when you think about it from a family perspective. Um, what's, you know, one of, is it the parenting that's producing the authenticity or the manipulation? Um, or is it partly also their personality? Right. <laughs> no, you know, it's an interesting thing that you just said. Um, uh, because this comes up in my practice a lot. And this is, uh, you, you just said, um, well, Cameron's parents hate him or Cameron's parents don't like him. Now, what's interesting about the film and what's interesting about life is that it's the old idea, do you believe everything you hear? Okay. So when a teenager in my office says, my parents hate my guts, now here's, here's the litany of reasons. I don't hear that. Mm. I, I hear that as a feeling, not a fact. You know, that's a big thing in sort of the family systems world. The different, you know, uh, people who are people who are a little less anxious are a bit more factual about their feelings. And what I mean by that is there's a difference between I feel like my mother hates my guts, and it is a fact that my mother hates my guts. Let me. I'll give you a perfect example. There are couples in my office. This happens quite a bit, where they feel like their partner ignored them tonight. They feel that way, right? But they say it as a fact. My partner hates me or my partner ignores me or my partner doesn't love me. And then I'll turn to, and what's nice about when you have two people in a session, I'll turn to their partner and say, what was happening at four o'clock today when you came home, Hmm. when you walked the door? And they'll say, and they'll say, you know, I'm listening to what my partner's saying and that isn't what happened at all. I had a hard day at work. I have a lump on my arm. I'm worried about it. I didn't want to share it with her because I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to raise her anxiety. So I ignored her. Now that's not to say there isn't chronic things in the marriage, but what happens often is that we interpret our family, our kids, our loved ones, their, um, their reactions. And depending how sensitive we are to other people's moods, we will misinterpret and, and take a, our own internal feeling of anxiety or insecurity as a fact that they're th- they they are thinking a certain way. Yeah. I would not agree that Cameron's parents hate his guts. Actually, I would even go so far as to say, based on the facts in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I would say there's a chronic marital issue in this family. We don't know what's going on, by the way. Remember, the only reporting we're getting about this marriage is Ferris Bueller saying, whenever I'm at their house, their parents fight all the time. And then Cameron saying that my father massages his car with a diaper and he spends more time caressing his car than anybody else in the family. We don't know if there's someone in the family with chronic cancer where it's causing chaos in the family. We don't know if a family business is about to go 
bankrupt. We don't know, we don't know anything. We only know the subjective feeling experiences of two teenagers. I would argue that his parents probably love him. And I I would go on a limb and say this, that I, I, in 30 years of doing this work, I don't know any parents actually. I really don't, by the way. In the craziest things I've heard in 30 years, I don't know any parent that when they're, however they're operating towards their kids is coming from a sense of lack of love or interest. Um, what I think probably is going on here, and we can keep riffing on this, is that Cameron is caught in some sort of a chronic ongoing issue between mom and dad, and it's bleeding into their relationship with their kid. Father's probably dealing with his marriage by distancing from his wife and spending more time on the car, blah, 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 blah. Cameron interprets this as it's about me. It's about me right? And I'm not so sure it has anything to do with him. Now, I have no facts to back that up. But I just wanted to point that out there because I think people often say that, what a horrible situation Cameron's in. His parents hate him. There is no way to know that. And I would even argue that's probably not true. Right. It's like we're actually getting just the pure mainline perception from Cameron. You know, it's interesting because I, you know, my father is English and very sort of stiff upper lip. And Throughout my childhood and adolescence, I thought my dad just didn't like to talk to me because um, we would drive in the car and he would just sort of silently drive the car (laughs) and I'd be like kind of waiting to have a conversation, but it it took me years to understand. And And then realizing that I myself do this with my kids, which is when I'm churning things in my head, I sometimes forget that there's someone sitting beside me and we're not having a conversation. Right. And then in turn realizing, oh, it wasn't about my dad not wanting to have a conversation with me. He was just constantly churning. And so it was a huge point for me of realizing, oh, there was my adolescent perception of what was going on and the feelings around that. But then there was the reality of like my dad as a person and whatever was going on with him that I interpreted as something with me. Right. Right. And, and you know, when you were, you're a 15, 16 year old teenage girl. You know, you don't have the emotional maturity to turn to your father and say, is it me, right, <laughs> dad? You know, I mean, what you do is you sit with your other, with, with your peers, right? And you sit there and you, you write in your journals and you get together in high school and you say, what a horrible life I have. And, you know, my father, you know, spends more time. But, but you know, it's an interesting thing, Ellie. I had a similar experience um, uh, when I was um, a teenager. The, the worst thing for me would be when my mother would be away and my brother, and it was just me and my dad in a car having nothing to say. It was brutal, <laughs> brutal. And I would always pray it was hockey season because at least we can either listen to the game or talk about hockey. And I always assumed it's because he didn't care about what I was doing uh, in my life. I was into, you know, 1980s metal. And, and I just thought he, he, did, he didn't care about my interests. I thought he was a pretty selfish guy. It was only when, and I've told the story many times in talks through the JFI, when my father and I became very close. And I, and I said to him, um, we talked about that. I'm like, is it that you weren't interested in what I had to say? And what he said to me was, he's like, that was my relationship with my dad. Like, I didn't know how to talk to you because I never spoke to my father. It wasn't anything more complex than we love the way we were loved, more or less. Right. If, if you grew up in a family where one of your parents loved through money because they thought that if I buy my kids something, that is a way or, or security or whatever, um, we are going to more or less be programmed to do something similar unless we spend a lot of time trying to, to rework that. Anyways, I think it's important here because um, I, I want to circle back to this idea that Cameron's big revelation here after sm- after the car is destroyed and and everything, you know, the whole brouhaha, his big revelation is, I'm going to tell my dad where to stick it. That's what I'm going to do. And I think the movie sort of ends with a, a eureka moment, right? Right. You, you awaken from the sleeplessness and you're going to tell your parents what to do. Let me ask you something. Let's just play this out. Ferris Bueller's Day Off too. Cameron confronts his father. How do you think that plays itself out? Cameron comes home one day, right? He goes, dad, sit down. I want to tell you something. How do you how do you how do you envision that playing itself out? 
Well, I can't imagine unless there was some significant, you know, happening, his father, I'm assuming, would just continue in his way of dealing with things, which is not talking about it or not interacting with him. Well, first of all, I mean, I think I would imagine his father would be pretty surprised, Cameron coming home, because Cameron's a depressive character. Right. right. Um, and so his father would have been used to Cameron being reclusive. Right. Right. He, uh, an introvert. Um, I'm right, not like sure his father on, would. Lying on his bed listening to uh, when Cameron was in Egypt land, <laughs> let my Cameron go. <laughs> exactly. And so I think his father would be surprised and shocked um, by that sort of confrontation. Um, my hunch is that it's, it's just emotional physics. Um, can't, the, the degree to which Cameron's anger would come out would be with his father's anger. So it could get very ugly is what I'm saying. I think this can get very ugly very fast. Um, you, you know, you know what happens, Ellie, S something is stewing within you and it's stewing and it's stewing and it's stewing and it's stewing. And then you, you just lash out at someone. Okay. Either two things are going to happen. Either the person who receives that kind of anger is going to buckle and, and try to get away from that. Um, or they're going to get defensive and say, you don't know. And then it's going to be you, you, and all the finger pointing at you, you, you. And this is where in some families that I've worked with where physical violence can happen. It, just good people, both anxiety is fueling this sort of reciprocity in two people. And this is where things can get ugly. And this is where um, I think that whenever we watch these movies, especially young people in my office would think this is a good idea. I say, well, you know, you might want to, to, to hold that thought here. Um, so I have a question for you. So I don't personally think that this would go well for Cameron and his father. And by the way, you should know in my office when that happens, I don't let that go on for very long. I might give it a minute or two and then I'll either separate people. I'll have one person wait in the waiting room and come back in because we can't think, you know, when our loved right. one is accusing us of a whole, whether it's a spouse or a child, you just stop thinking, you get very defensive. Right. And then you're in all, like all, fight, flight, freeze or, you right. know, yeah. Right, right, and and um, I I have never wanted to provide my clients with a safe space to just treat each other more horribly than they do at home. <laughs> right, I, they can do that for free, right, in their living room, um, and so I see it as my job to to lower reactivity and to to try to get people to go to their thinking brain to get curious about how the hell did we get here and what's my part. You know, I have always thought if I can do that with my clients, all the money they spend on therapy is worth it. Can they get to a place like? Let's take Cameron. If Cameron was in my office, and I've worked with many Camerons, and he said to me, my father, and he went on and on about how horrible his father is. And I said to him, Cameron, let me ask you something. Have you ever thought you're wrong? Like, you ever think once that you just might not be reading this right? Okay. You know, Ellie, it's funny. Often people will say to me, no, but tell me more. Right. Because I think people intuitively know things aren't black and white that it's more complex, right? So I, I think that, you know, right now Cameron can't be talked out of that. He, his friends are all supporting, um, all supporting this. Um, I wonder, I wonder if, um, I wonder what would have to happen for Cameron to be able to expand his understanding of what's happening in this family, if that's even possible. To understand, to understand, this might not be about you. Your father rubbing his car might have nothing to do with you. Do you think at 16 or whatever age they're supposed to be, there's the maturity to hold that idea? Like how, what would that look like for a teenager? Ellie, it's, it's such a great question. Um, we've talked about this before. Uh, my late supervisor, when I first started working with him in 2008, I, I called David in Vancouver. I asked him to be my supervisor. I couldn't believe he would take me on. He was retired, semi-retired. And our first session, I was telling him about a teenager I was working with. And he asked me a question, which I didn't understand what, what he was asking. And he said, why are you working with the teenager? I said, because I'm an adolescent therapist. That's my <laughs> subspecialty. Um, and he said to me, well, why would you bring in a teenager? I thought he was doing some sort of psycho babble Freudian right. kind of like, and I said to him, David, I, I, I don't understand. The, the kids kicked out of school, acting up, drugs. <coughs> and David said to me something that has stuck with me and I've changed my way of working right around then and I've never looked back. 
he basically said to me, change starts from the top, not from the bottom. So he goes, if you think by seeing this teenager in your office is gonna create any change in this family system, he's like, you are sorely mistaken. And he goes, if you think it's a smart business decision, it's not because what's gonna happen is you're gonna get a honeymoon phase of four weeks where the kid calms down, not because you're such a good therapist, because the parents think something is being done and the parents' anxiety is gonna go down. But the kid's going to be as reactive because the problem isn't being addressed. And the parents are going to call you in about six weeks going, uh, his marks are still low. He's still smoking pot. What kind of therapy is this? So David helped me understand that 16-year-olds, as precocious as they might be, do not have the financial, emotional, or intellectual power to see their part in the problem. And even if they can, and I don't know too many who can, I don't know too many 20-year-olds who can do this, to do anything about it. So David was the first person to say to me, you have to get the leaders in any system to work on the system. So in a synagogue, that would be the president or the CEO or the rabbi, not the janitor. As lovely as they might be, they, are not, they, they don't have the power to, to make change that will change the system or, to, or identify the problem. In a family, it's always the parents or the guardians or, or a, a, a grandfather or a grandmother. Okay. So can we, can we like shove that for a moment into like a digression about say like, so what does that mean then say for like a grassroots movement <clears throat> that is, for instance, like pushing against something that the government's doing that isn't good for them, right? Does that, does that apply to all systems? That's what I'm asking. It applies to all systems. It applies to all systems. The, que the, question, um, the question is efficacy. And how do you want to best spend your time? So, you know, I, I, I would, if someone came to my office and they said, they're going to go march in the street, right? They're going to go march in the street and they're doing it on principle, right? They're doing it to model for their kids, you know, um, how to, how to be an engaged citizen. Um, I, I think, you know, have at it. If, if, if it, if it makes you feel, if it makes you feel like you're doing something and, and we know, by the way, that grassroots organizations do work at some level then do it. The question is, can you do it with maturity? Can you right. do it with a systems approach? Can you see that you're part of the problem too? That's right. not what I hear, Ellie. That's not what and I, I hear on Facebook. And I see what you mean about efficacy, because if we think about, you know, the grassroots gun movements in the United States, but then you look at New Zealand where the leader just basically walked up and changed all the gun laws, like that was over. <laughs> like she, as the leader, had the power and the agency to be able to simply change the whole system. Whereas I see what you mean, it, it, even though grassroots always raise awareness, it's ultimately the, the people at the top that have the power to change the system. Right. And, <clears throat> and, but again, it, com it comes down to efficacy. Um, and so if you really want to change a system, it has to be the leaders. The, the problem is, and I don't want to get too depressing here on this show, um, is that Dr. Bowen made an observation. It was his, I believe it's the eighth concept in his theory. He has eight interlocking concepts. The eighth was called societal regression. And he came up with this concept. It was the, one of the last ones he came up with before he died during the 50s and 60s. It actually, right around the 60s when the Vietnam War and, and everything that was going on in the States. And he believed that our society was in a state of societal regression. He looked to, to things he was seeing in his practice and in families and marriages, but he was also looking at society. And he believed that this was going to continue to play itself out over decades until it got so bad that leaders will be forced to reconsider how we are operating as a society. Um, I spoke to a colleague of mine who lives in San Diego and uh, my supervisor who lives in West Virginia, actually was my supervisor who lives in West Virginia. And she believes that is still playing itself out today. And the, the glass half empty message from her was that um, it ain't gotten bad enough yet. So what can I tell you, Ellie? I think, yep. I mean, yeah. you know, and, I, and you know that, everyone's like definition whole... of rock bottom is different. Actual rock bottom is rarely what we think it's gonna be. Well, that's why, you know, if you ever had a chance to go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting and you listen to people, how they got there. And some people have a story where they've been to AA, you know, 14 times, but this time, this time I have to change, that's rock bottom. Right. Anybody in an AA or NA meeting that is successful will give you their version of rock bottom. And, and, that's, and, and that just is because we, as human beings, we, we push from an evolutionary perspective to keep things the same because it's safer, it's more comfortable. So even, you know, what's the idea? You know, even though my marriage or my relationship with my children, even though I know it's, it's crappy, at least it's the crappy that I know. 
right? Right. At least it's right. something that's familiar to me. Exactly. Right. Um, and so um, uh, coming back to this idea of parenting, so here's, here's another question Ellie, I want to ask you that we were talking about before this started. What does a parent do when their 16 or 17 year old child like Cameron comes home and basically says to you, hey, mom, I've been really thinking about this. You ruined my freaking life. <laughs> because uh, it's well, going to happen. It's going to happen when I did it with my mom. <laughs> did you? Did you really do that? Uh, I don't know if I was quite so clear and elegant, eloquent. I think it had something to do with like leaving my diary open to a page that just said, I hate my mom kind of thing, like those types of passive aggressive moves. Um, yeah, I, I think on one hand, it depends on the enlightenment of the parent to be able to hear that and not get triggered and not freak out because that potentially could be a good conversation, but more than likely, you know, if the kid is in that state, there's already a certain state of like inflammation that the parents in. And that's just going to be like you said, it's going to be a head on collision um, in terms of both people being defensive and both people being, you know, pointing fingers. Yeah, that's it's, my, it's like, a... that's my guess. But it, I think it's you're right. It depends where the parents at. Well, it's interesting you said that. Uh, I remember I was working in Vancouver with a, with a family and the mother said to me that um, she knows where her kid's journal is. And it was about a drug thing, uh, selling drugs. And she said, I'm going to go read through it because if there's something illegal, I need to know. And I said, well, let's, let's think about this for a second. Let's just, let's just put pause on reading that journal here for a second. Let's play this itself out. Let's say you're right. Not that you're wrong, but you're right. You read your kid's journal and you find out the goods, then what? So, well, I'm gonna confront them. I'm gonna tell them that they've been lying to me and I found it. And I said, okay, that's fine. But what is your function here? What is the function? You're a parent to this child. So let's think five months out, three years out, okay? So you win the battle. Your child was lying to you. They're selling some weed. Okay, now what happens? So they thought about it and they thought, and they were going on the assumption that my job is to be a narc, is to find out, right? Is to find out, say that you're lying to me in this. My argument to the parent was, you're probably gonna buy yourself four years of a lack of trust. They're gonna look for another elder to confide in. They're gonna look for another right. adult to speak to. They, you have lost all trust. They will lose all trust in you as a, as, a, as a source of comfort and safety and security, and they will find anybody else to speak to. So as parents with teenagers, we have to really think we can win the battle but lose the war, and a lot of parents lose the war. And they do it because they love their kids, by the way. This isn't because they don't love their kids. They right. think that they're doing well by their kids. My, my argument with, with my argument, my, my idea with parents is that your job is to help your teenager transition from adolescence to adulthood. That is it. As, as Al Pacino says in, uh, uh, what's that movie, uh, in, um, in Heat, Booby. That's it, Booby. That's it. That is your job, is to help your teenager transition to become a young adult. And you can't do that if your teenager doesn't trust you. You can't do that if your teenager feels that you don't see, hear, and understand them. So if you're going to go rifle through their journal, you better prepare to sever that very critical element of parenting with your kid. Right. right? So... Coming back, you know, so it's an interesting thing, the journal thing just reminded me of this family I worked with. Um, you know, the, the thing with Cameron is this. I don't know too many parents that could handle it, Ellie. I'm just, you know, I, I like dealing with reality. So I don't know too many parents who have the backbone. By the way, for two reasons. One, parents know. So I don't know of a parent, if a teenager at 16 came up and said to a parent, you know, let's say a parent who travels all the time for work. Let's say they travel. They've been traveling ever since the kid was five, right? And the kid sees their other friends, families, whatever, and their parents are home. So the kid comes home and tells their parent at the age of 16, they turn to their mother who's been traveling for most of their life, and they, you know what, you've been absent and it really hurts me. You don't think the mother has been thinking about that every single freaking night over and over again. There's, you know, it's funny in families. Everybody thinks that in families, like, let's not talk about the thing. We don't want to hurt the kids. The kids know. And if they don't know, they know something's weird. Okay, there is no such thing in a family system that's so tied that we don't really know what's going on. We either assume something is worse because something's weird right. in this family, or we know, but no one's saying anything. Right. So here's the thing. 
if a kid comes up, if Cameron would come up to his father, and let's say I was working with the father, hypothetically, okay, and just, what do I do with this? I think the first thing is, can you get yourself calm and just hear your kid? Not the content, but the process. The content is the F-bombs and the, you know, all the horrible things your kid is saying to you. Can you look past that? Now, a lot of parents can't because they, a lot of parents, they go to, how can you say that to me? How can you use those words to me? I thought you respected me. Like we go to the content part. Cameron is trying to say something to his father, right? You don't see me. It is really painful and, my, and I paid a price for that and I'm, and I'm hurting here and I'm trying to connect with you in some way. And if a parent can hear that part, right? The gift, we've talked about this in one of the titles I've used for the talk, Ellie, the gift is in the symptom. Right. When a teenager is acting out, that is the gift to rework a relationship. <clears throat> so more mature parents can hear teenage acting out as an opportunity to reconnect with their kid in a new way. More mature parents or less anxious parents can ask themselves a question. You know, my kid is doing something and saying things to me right now. It's very not acceptable. I don't accept this. However, is there some validity to what they're saying? Is there some truth? Is there some part that I am part of that created this? And if you can start there and the child can truly feel that you are here, you are seeing, hearing, and understanding them. Yeah. And you have the patience to wait a few days as things dial down. Yeah. You have the opportunity to rework a multi-generational wound that was likely handed down, that is now reacting and so it's getting active now. It's really hard to do. It's really, really hard to do on your own. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting therapy is always the answer, but it's usually a third person clergy, especially my, my, uh, my from families who have a rabbi that they're very close with can serve as that third person to work through something like this. A guidance counselor can do that. Um, there are some parents who can, but, but generally when a teenager comes in like Cameron and tells their parent that I hate you and you've ruined my life, it's really hard to just sit there and not get caught up and get defensive. Right. And I love what you're saying too about the need for like a team or scaffolding to be able to, once that, once that gasket does blow, um, you know, where do you go to get support to put it back, you know, restructure and put things back together rather than just letting you know the pieces fall where they may and and i think a lot of people forget that as parents it's so important to have scaffolding and structure and teams like people that can help you navigate that kind of stuff you don't have to do it by yourself well look what one of the problems with therapy today and I, I consider this to be a, a big problem. It's one, actually, here's a plug for my third book. Uh, the book that I wrote with my late supervisor is coming out in September. I'm really excited. It's a I'm wonderful book. I am super excited. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so good. And it's, it's written like letters to a young poet. I'm asking in 2010, I post questions to him about how to do therapy with families. But it's, it, there's so much wisdom in the book that it's, it's really, it's, it's applicable to anybody who's interested about marriage and family. Um, uh, one of the things that um, uh, David was very worried about, about the state of therapy, was the focus on the individual. CBT, um, some psychoanalytic approaches, some attachment theories. This idea that what you do is you get the kid in your office by themselves and you see the teenager for three years. And, and the teenager has this idealized parent in the form of a therapist. So the parent outsources their therapy to a, to a therapist and the therapist becomes this like the mother you never had to rework, to rework some childhood wound. And the parents pay 150, 200, who knows what, every week to have their kids sit there and say how horrible their mother is, how horrible their mother is. And, 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 the, and the therapist acts as this blank slate of acceptance. And, and what's fascinating, three years later, the kid just leaves enraged with their family, enraged with their right. childhood. Right. Nothing has changed. I've worked with so many young adults uh, Ellie and my practice who've been in years of therapy and all they've left with is this, in my opinion, distorted sense of rage at their family. No right, like, oh, the, family's, the family's toxic and that's why I'm messed up. Do you know how often young people in their twenties come into my office and say, I need to talk to you. Um, I come from a toxic family. Where did they learn that toxic? Right. right? I mean, our family's poison. I don't think so. I don't right. think so. Okay. Not I really today. do believe. Look, there, there, but you've already pointed out there are 
issues and patterns and things that people are dealing with, which make up the whole system. This isn't to, to ignore the fact that families can have problems and they affect people. Look, if you're, you know, if you're, if your grandparents, like my grandparents, my mother's side, lost half their family in the Holocaust, that's going to have an impact on how people see the world, how people view saving money, how people um, uh, understand uh, other cultures. It's going to have an impact, and that's going to get passed down through the generations. It is not mean people doing mean things because they have nothing better to do with their time, or that we're all living in a version of Silence of the Lambs. That's just not true. You know, <clears throat> if you think about like sociopathy or psychopaths, we have right. a little we have a little unit at CAMH that hosts all the true psychopaths. It's right. a little unit. It's not, it's not the it's main not like every parent of, that treats their kids in a way that's really uncomfortable for them. That's right. That's right. We, 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 we you know, everybody, you know, we talk about this thing of toxic parenting and I got to tell you, the other thing that just drives me crazy is this whole idea of cutting off your parents. So a lot of young adults will come in, they've been in therapy and their therapist encouraged them. You got to cut off your parents. And I, I just, and I try to really, that's when I have to breathe. Breathe, Avram, breathe, mm -hmm. you know, because I don't want to, I don't want to dump on my colleagues too much. But right. when you cut off from your family, you are going to be perpetuating something because mm -hmm. the, the idea is, is that you have inherited something, a knot, a knot that your parents inherited from your grandparents and that you've inherited something. And one of Bowen's great observations is the way that we work through our um, generational knots is by dealing with the previous generation, by learning to calm down get curious, ask questions, and notice that you don't disappear as you're speaking to your parent. Now, I am not saying, by the way, that there isn't violence and you should protect yourself. Absolutely. But that's, that's rare. That's rare. So if Cameron was saying to me in my office that, you know, he comes from a toxic family and his parents always fight, and I might say to him, well, you might not want to sit down both your parents. That might not go well. Mm. Right? Okay. And, I, and by the way, Cameron at his age, I wouldn't even encourage him to sit down with his father, to be honest with you. You know, I'll give you an example, Ellie. This, um, a couple, let's just say a couple of weeks ago, I got a, a call from uh, a young adult. We'll just leave it like that, a young adult. And they're worried about their young adult sibling. And they said, We're we'd like to come for family therapy. And I asked them, well, why are you calling? How come your parents aren't calling? Well, you know, it's, I've always been worried about that. You could see the, the kid is an over-functioning young adult, right. that they've been taking care of the family. Right. And so one way to do therapy is I could have said, well, why don't you come in? And that, by the way, that's legitimate. I could have brought this young adult into therapy. Another way to do it, and this is what I chose to do, I said to this young person, why don't you speak to your parents and have them call me, have them contact me. And if they are interested, they can come and see me. If they are not interested, you're more than welcome to come back in. Because change starts with the leaders, change starts with the parents. So if Cameron, if Cameron wants to make change, my, my suggestion to Cameron would be, Speak to your parents, speak to your mom and dad, and see if, you know, they will either attend with you to therapy or that maybe your dad um, will come or, or what have you. I would not encourage him to cut off from his father, and I would not encourage him to read his father the riot act, because I just don't think it's going to go well. Yeah, and I think a lot of people do that out of... Um not having creative options, right? Like the only way to make this stop is to like, you know, just blast it um, rather than thinking, oh, there maybe there's an option. Can we all sit down and talk about this together? Mainly because Cameron would have to be in a certain state of maturity to encourage that. And if his parents aren't in that place, like it creates, um, creates a difficult situation. If the kid's the one that notices that the system isn't working but the parents don't, what do you do? Yeah, Ellie, your point actually is actually very critical. It's not that Cameron isn't in the state of maturity. He is not in the state of maturity because he's, he's 17 years old. What you just said is actually closer to the point. And what I mean by that is that his family is too anxious to be able to do this work with him. So Cameron is, it's destined to fail if he's gonna confront his father in this way, okay? Um, it's one of the reasons why when parents call me and they'll say to me, um, we're really worried about our kid. We heard you speak at JFI. We'd like to come and see you. How fast can we get in our kid? And I'll say, you know, this isn't a speed thing. I, I tell parents the same thing. You have one shot bringing in your teenager. One shot. You ruin that one shot, they're not coming back. And here's the one shot. If the teenager feels that it's a kibosh in the therapy session, meaning that 
it's the therapist and the parents against them. They right. ain't coming back. If the teenager feels the therapy is just an opportunity for the parents to repeat ad nauseum what they hear in their living room, but in a therapist's office, they're not coming back. Right. The only reason why a teenager would come back into a therapy session is if they genuinely hear their parents owning their part of the problem and are curious to hear what their teenager really has to say. Mm. Okay? And that usually takes five, six sessions for the parents to dial down the anxiety, expand the problem away from whatever symptom the kid has, right. okay? and becomes curious about the bigger picture here. What's happening here beyond the teenager? Okay. So you're absolutely right. In this case, it's not that Cameron is too anxious, which he is. Okay. And he's getting, in my humble opinion, poor guidance from his peers, like we all did when we were 15, 16. <laughs> By the way, if you want to see, if you want to see poor guidance, I, anyways, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be encouraging people to do this. If you ever want to see poor guidance, just go onto Reddit, go onto any sub, go, no, no, one sec, go onto any subreddit of any drug, meth, heroin, and just read the advice everyone's giving. If you want to see the blind leading the blind, okay, just go onto any subreddit of any drug and watch and watch the community support each other in, in very um, interesting ways. Um, so yes, um, yes. If you have a that very, just totally yeah. speaks to choosing your leaders wisely. <laughs> you know, which um, I think is interesting when we see Ferris Bueller and Sloan and Cameron, in many ways, this film shows just their world, but in different moments, how they're parenting each other. Well, and this is, well, this is John Hughes' main theme, Ellie. I mean, you're absolutely right. This is John Hughes' main theme. You know, 16 Candles, right? Mo uh, Molly Ringwald, I forget what her name was in the film. Molly Ringwald, they forget her birthday. Do you remember? Right. She turned 16 and she's mortified because yeah. they forget her birthday. The Breakfast Club, all five kids, we'll, we'll get to this with The Breakfast Club, all five kids have different versions of I am not seen, heard, or understood by my parents. Right. All five, okay? Same thing in um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. John Hughes has that thing going around that teenagers, teenagers, and this is where I would argue with John Hughes, not all teenagers, I think he thinks all teenagers, but teenagers are not seen, heard, and understood by their parents. Either they're an extension of their parents' hopes and dreams, unfulfilled in the parent, okay? Right. Or they're just like um, anno little annoyances that you have to deal with. Okay? Well, I would even push um, it yeah. one step further, which is, you know, really where we've ended up on say like Disney and Nickelodeon sitcoms, which is the premise was not only were they not seen or heard or understood, but they actually know better. And, you know, so many of the characters you'll see, you know, they, if the parents would listen, see and understand their kids, things would be so much better. And I think that's where we run into this strange sort of cultural zeitgeist right now where on all tv shows the parents are idiots and the kids are really the ones that are in the know and solving all the problems yeah and, and ellie it's, it's so interesting because if you think of the culture cultural um zeitgeist stuff like the 1950s the beaver and cleaver stuff where the parents really were leaders now i'm not saying we should go back there uh -huh. but there has been a fundamental right. switch since the 1960s of the distrust of leadership and right. that it's the youth the youth have the the, the new ideas and and i'm going to tell you something right now i love my kids they're great kids and they're smart, but they're not that smart. Okay. So, so, yes. um, uh, you know, let's get, you know, I mean, it, it, it works well on TV, all these precocious 16 year olds who understand how to solve the world's problems. And I got to tell you, Ellie, you're, you're touching on something very interesting. It's not just in families. You're hearing this also in media where, you know, what do the kids have to say? We got to ask the kids, you know, there's a reason why we have a, a term, it's not in the Torah, but at least in psychology, of adolescence. It's a period of trying to figure out who you are, what you believe, and what you stand for. And the research ain't great. The research suggests that more than ever, adolescence is being extended into the 20s. They want to extend adolescence now till about 23, 24, because people don't know what their principles are. They don't know what their values are. They're very other focused on their peers and on fashion and stuff. And, they, and they're very anxious. It's a recipe for disaster for leadership, okay? Hmm. So um, while media could, could try to hoodwink everybody into thinking that the young people really know, listen to the young people, I think anybody with any intuitive sense of how to get something done knows that it's strong leadership that requires wisdom, right? Life experience, right. okay? Lower anxiety, right? you know? Um, and- um, uh, But what we're seeing, yeah. right, but what we're seeing is, 
the idea built up that leadership isn't mature. It isn't, it's, it's explosive. It's, um, you know, uh, very spontaneous. It's very, you know, with whatever the issue is of the moment, you know, so the, the role model of leadership that's being put out there is very much like Ferris Bueller, right? It, it, it's, it's really that kind of idea of what, this is what leadership looks like as opposed right. to someone who would be mature and calm and, you know, oh, that's boring and they're out of it and they're not with what's really going on. So I, I think it's interesting, you know, that we're already yep. seeing, seeing that in the John Hughes films and we're watching it play out now in terms of how people culturally see what leadership should look like. Right, right. I mean, I think you sort of see this in some of the characters in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I think the secretary, Mm -hmm. You know the funny, the funny secretary, yeah. the principal secretary, sticking pens well, in her hair. Yeah, she <laughs> sort of knows. She sort of knows that the principal is way too anxiously focused on Ferris and right. is losing sight of his role as principal right. and is caught up. And, and so, oh my gosh, John, maybe we should do the principal next. <laughs> yeah, he's, well, no, no, it's it's fascinating, right? Because um, uh, we we should talk about we we sort of do talk about that, but how John Hughes approached adults in his films. Right. Um, they were either on the periphery of the films, or they were just lost souls. Right. All the adults are actually either lost souls or out to lunch. He never really actually made them stupid, like what you're talking about in Nickelodeon. The adults today in TV shows and films are dumb. They're right. dumb and they're trying to be cool with the kids and they're, but John Hughes didn't do that. John Hughes was talking about a certain dysfunction I think he was trying to show. And that's why I think John Hughes was brilliant in how he depicted families. I think it was a bit distorted, but I think that's what he was trying, uh, right. trying to do. I, I do want to just point out one thing um, because it's, it's topical. Uh, speaking about leadership, um, people who are listening to this, I think it's very important to not get too caught up into the weeds of the macro leadership, presidents and prime ministers and mayors. Most of the people who, um, Ellie, we know and we work with are just parents. They're just freaking parents trying to do the best job they can. And we're trying to get back, we're trying to figure out what to do with the fall. So forget about John Tory and Donald Trump and President Trudeau, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Most parents are trying to make leadership decisions for the fall. So what I would encourage people to do is watch within yourself and watch your peers, watch what happens over the next few months. You're going to see, try to identify the leaders that fill you with hope, but realistic appraisal of the facts going forward and watch for the, watch for other people who are full of anxiety, right? And you can tell the difference. And here's the tell, here's the tell. Anybody that tells you what to do is very anxious. Hmm. Anybody that tells you the choice you made that you're wrong and you're killing people or the opposite, right, is anxious. Okay, leaders ask good questions and first focus on themselves and their decisions and then they course correct based on the facts that come in. Mm. It's, a not, it's, a, it's a not sexy kind of leadership, but it's a more right. of a cool calm and then it calms everything down. And generally, Ellie, generally, whatever those leaders do, whatever those parents do, the kids follow suit in their own anxiety levels. Watch over the next three, four months where anxiety is gonna go up in certain families and communities and where anxiety is gonna fall. Okay, and try to identify those elements of leadership. Right. Okay. Um, going forward, because you're going to see, you're going to see this daily going forward over the next few months. I think that's so interesting, even from a Jewish point of view, because whenever we talk about leadership Jewishly, we always have to, at some point, refer to to Moses, to Moshe, and what was the defining characteristic that we use to describe Moshe. It wasn't charisma. It wasn't like, you know, spontaneous um, oratorship. It was humility and his ability to recognize his, his, his gifts and his, his failings and to do what you said, like to ask questions, to try to understand what was going on. And I think that's such an interesting way of thinking about finding, you know, he sort of modeled that non-anxious leadership even though you know you know he look he does get into complaining like these people are driving me crazy what am i going to do with them like how do i handle this and and we see the serious consequences of when he lets his anxiety rule and he gets angry rather than being the mature role model that he's supposed to be so i think it's kind of interesting that also built into our you know co the jewish collective unconscious 
is, is actually what a mature leader looks like and how do they handle challenge and change. I, that, that would be a fa actually, that would be a fascinating uh, blog topic. Someone should tackle that in terms of, you know, um, because, you know, I, I hear a lot about the ep epidemiological, epidemiological, you know, ideas about going back to school. And, you know, um, I think that grounding ourselves in tradition for some of these very difficult choices that the last time as Jews, we've had to make choices like this. I'm assuming probably we have to harken back to World War II. I'm trying to think when else we'd have to make, you know, and, and what did tradition say in terms of our education, parenting, um, leaving Europe, all those sorts of uh, major, major decisions. How did tradition help those leaders? And we know we have some evidence about, you know, certain Hasidic groups who stayed in Europe, certain groups who, who left. What source did they use to make those choices? And I think that, I think that families who, who have the benefit of um, or the um, connection to um, uh, uh, source material, they do have a rootedness. I think that is, well, no, I'm going to say more helpful than just relying on physicians. Um, and I think right. that that would be a fascinating topic in terms of what a tradition have to say. Ellie, we have some uh, questions, I think, um, in the yeah, chat. I saw you pop up. I wish. Um, when does adolescence start? This is from Sophia. When does adolescence start now? Is it only prolonged or it also starts earlier? Oh, so that's a great question in terms of you were saying that now what we're seeing is adolescence being prolonged into the 20s. So is it starting earlier also in terms of um, that? It seems to me that kind of teenage mindset. Um, but how do we define adolescence and, and when are we seeing it begin and end now? Yeah, uh, I, I haven't seen the um, the most recent studies in terms of you know when are girls menstruating in the in, in twenty twenty for example versus uh, the nineteen fifties. I know that my understanding when I used to be more uh, prone, more um, uh, exposed to this information was that things were getting earlier. So what once was thirteen is now eleven. Yes. So really, what people say right now is we have two. Um, there's a few phases one might call. And by the way, we made these up. This isn't this isn't wired into our DNA. This is like, you know, this is a bunch of therapists that are- We're just trying to understand what's going on to the best possible. Yeah. <laughs> so basically um, what we call the tween years, the right. tween years could be anywhere between, let's say 11, 12 to about 13, right around there. The early adolescence, 13 to maybe 14, 15, mid-adolescence, you're talking, nine to 11, somewhere in there. And generally once upon a time, maybe I would say five, 10 years ago, <coughs> late adolescence, or what we call the transitional years to young adulthood would be, um, in, well, in Montreal, it would have been grade 11, but uh, you know, we're talking about 16, 17, 18, right. right around then when you're transitioning to either going away to school or leaving home and getting a job. So for example, Ellie, our parents and our grandparents, their transition was happening around 19. My mom had her it was married by 19. She had her first kid, I think, at 20 or 21. Right. But that's not happening anymore. And, and we're seeing this not physically. The physical stuff is for the young kids, um, especially uh, girls, you know, uh, maybe menstruating earlier than they once were. But in terms of emotional maturity, what, what therapists are looking to do or what some researchers would like to do, they'd like to extend adolescence based on observation, what they're seeing from 18 to maybe 23, 24 even. Hmm. Um, and because it, it, they're just noticing this in terms of um, uh, how young 20s are acting and they're acting more akin to the way teenagers were acting, let's say 20, 30 years ago when right. they were uh, 17, 18. Now, right. all of this, by the way, I mean, it's an interesting, uh, I guess, academic question. Um, the more interesting thing from my perspective um, is that um, uh, the more anxious we are as a society, the more prolonged our adolescence becomes. And I think that is just you know, it's not debatable. So the more anxious and unsure of who we are, the, the more we don't know what we stand on, the more we, we're not clear in our principles, we will extend that. And I have seen people, Ellie, in my office in their 30s, some in their 40s, where you can call it an extended adolescence, a Peter Pan 
type thing happening. It's happening to women and men. It's not just men. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, a, it's just a sign of the times. You know, a lot of, I, I don't get, not to get too political, but I mean, people say, you know, how did we get Donald Trump? How did Donald Trump? I'm like, you know, we get the leader we deserve or the culture gets the leader that they, that, you know, people are, how did it happen? How did it happen? You know, things aren't so mysterious right. in life. Right. Um, that we, we elect the, that we elect celebrities as leaders, you know, is, is it, an it, interesting. That's right. And, that and that's right. And, you know, I mean, we, we are, we're a very anxious society. We, we look to one uh, figurehead, <laughs> one Godhead to sort of, you know, take us out of, you know, th this, this mess that whatever we've made, and there's a lot of great stuff too, but um, we, we are clearly a, a quite an anxious society and, uh, I hope what people get out of these calls is that um, if you're going to double down on anything, double down on your own functioning as a leader, uh, as a parent, as a business owner, um, and spend a little bit less time worrying about what the prime minister or so-and-so is doing, and a little bit more time trying to figure out what exactly is it that I believe in this house, where I'm the gatekeeper and I have some semblance of power over that. What do I believe about my relationship with my mother who's still alive? And... And, and how, how do I want to manifest that relationship going forward? These type of things we have some semblance of control over. And yes, vote, sure, vote. You know, go, go into your Facebook groups and right. get angry about something. But right. the most power we have is the gatekeeping role that we have in our own families. So I wanna ask you, um, you know, to kind of come back to Cameron. Last week, what I really loved was, you, you know, we tried to imagine what Ferris Bueller would look like in 10 years or 20 years, like as this continued. So let's do the same with Cameron. Like, let's just say Cameron continues along his, you know, poor kind of poor Cameron self, you know, sitting in his car, banging on the steering wheel, like not wanting to listen to his friend. Um, where do you see Cameron in 10, 15 years? How does this play out, this kind of more depressive, but also angry um, situation. Yeah, um, I see Cameron in my office. I get a call from Cameron. He's maybe uh, 26. He's very bright, so he has a career. He was able to finish school. He's a very bright guy, but he, no matter what he does, there's no joy in his life. He's depressed. He's, he went to see his GP. He tried some antidepressants. They're working, but you know, he, he has trouble maintaining relationships. Someone heard about me or someone like me. He's in my office. And within 20 minutes of doing some family history, I realize he's cut off from his mother and his father, likely right. his grandparents. Um, all of his source of joy. Mainly because he, has, he threw his father's porch off the porch. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And his father kicked him out of the house. Although I don't think that would happen actually in a family like this. Um, I really don't. Uh, they would have the financial means, by the way, to probably go see a therapist because right. that would be such an explosive event of carving off the, right. the porch that they probably end up in something like that. Um, but that's just, a, that's just an assumption on my part. So yeah, I see him. He'd be in my office um, and uh, the work would be long going. It would not be easy because he would have built up uh, over a decade of um, my parents are toxic. I had to cut them out of my life. Um, but I can't maintain a relationship and I, I have no joy in my life. And, and my job would be to be very patient, listen to his story, listen to his story and look for those little openings, those little openings of opportunities to try to serve as a catalyst for curiosity to understand that maybe you don't have it all figured out, Cameron. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe there's some missing bits here. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever spoken to your aunt? What was your father like as a little boy? That really works with a lot of my clients like who are like Cameron, right? Get away from the here and now or adolescence. Go back to when your father was 14. So I might ask, I might ask, and I, by the way, I have a lot of Camerons in my office. So I, I might ask something like this. I might say, Cameron, let me ask you something. Um, how did you, your father and his father fight? Hmm. And almost always he, he'll look at me and say, I don't think they had a good relation. I, I don't know. I'm like, well, what do you think? How'd they fight? I don't know. Do you think, you think your grandfather and your father talked about sex? <laughs> I don't know. And what happens is the more he says, I don't know, the more I'm planting a seed in his head that I don't know my dad. Right. That your father I know nothing person. about my dad. They're not just like this, your dad, quote unquote, that's the enemy. That, that he didn't wake up one morning and took a diaper and started wiping his car and ignoring his son. That's not how it happened. Here's something else I would ask Cameron. Was your father in the hospital room when you were born? Hmm. I know my mother was. 
<laughs> like, I don't know if he was. Yeah. Do, do you know if he cried? Do you know if your father cried? Do you know how many men in my office don't know that their father was in the room crying? Huh. They don't know. Wow. They don't know that their father in the earliest of years was there either really anxious and worried about how they're going to be a father or crying. They just assumed their father was at work and they didn't care. And they just, they, they, they were, that their father was always doing what they've been doing. Yeah. I have no idea who this person is. And Elliot, something we've talked about. We have a whole bunch of assumptions about who our families are, the people we love the most. We don't have a clue. And, and everybody who listens to me goes, I do though. Right. <laughs> I know my family. I know. <laughs> it is unbelievable how often, first of all, in my own life, but also in, uh, in my office, how often when I have a chance to have siblings sitting in my office and they, ha they have assumed something about their other sibling for 15, 20 years and they're wrong. It happens so often that I just accepted the fact that people no who one love knows. each other, we just don't, we, well, we know some stuff, but we don't know a lot. And especially about our parents and especially about our parents' relationship with their parents. Right. Right. Okay. So if I could do that with Cameron, it, it might provide a small window of hope of an opening um, for some sort of a rapprochement. And what we know from the family systems research that has been done, symptoms decrease the more we reconnect with cutoff. Without any other intervention, no mindfulness, no exercise, no, just symptoms decrease as people reconnect with people they are cut off from or chronically con conflicting with. Mm -hmm. That the symptoms seem to have some sort of a relationship. It's not the full picture, but some sort of a relationship with the ongoing chronic issues with people in our family of origin. Huh. I think it's so fascinating. I mean, even if you just think of it as illness, it's like, okay, I'm just going to ignore the fact that this, this is illness and hope it goes away, right? But when you ignore illness, it always gets worse until you actually address it and start to heal whatever the illness is. So I think that's interesting yeah. when you think about cutoff in that way. Um, Michelle asked a question on, on the chat. She was saying, do you find more Camerons coming into your office today or Ferris or Genies? What are, what, what are many adolescents mirroring today as opposed to that previous generation or, or is it the same? Do you think there's more of one of those characters that you're seeing you know, you've been doing this for quite some time. So over the years, have you seen the archetype change of young adults that are coming into your office? Well, first of all, I don't, I mean, um, I think what I see that comes into my office has more a sense of my own marketing and, and promotional material where my clinical focus is than what, what's actually happening in the culture, if that makes any sense. So now that I'm writing books on marriage, I just happen to have more, uh, my practice is now probably, I would say 85, 15, 85% marital, relationship type things and 15% adolescent family. Right. When I first opened my private practice in 2008 and I was more of like a, an adolescent therapist or when I worked in mm -hmm. Vancouver, it was all adolescents. So I wouldn't say that I'm seeing any trend based on what's happening in the culture, just more about where my clinical focus is. So I, I don't know right. how to answer that question. Well, maybe um, even in the couples that you're seeing, are you seeing more archetype people that are more like Cameron or more like Ferris? Like, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, cause you said there was this sort of um, Peter Pan type thing that's showing up in both men and women, even in the couples, are you seeing these types of archetypes also? Yeah, well, I'll tell you right now what I'm seeing. And this is, a, I, I don't think we have a lot of time. No, we're not gonna have time to tackle this, but uh, there's a line in the film that I think is fantastic. It's when Ferris Bueller, they're talking about marriage and Ferris Bueller wants to marry Sloan. He's very into the, the marriage thing. And Cameron is saying, I'll never marry, I'll never marry. And even Sloan is saying her parents' marriage is a mess. And then and Ferris Bueller says something like, um, give me one good reason, Cameron, why you wouldn't get married. He goes, I'll give you two, my mother and my father. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which like is such a great line, line. <laughs> such a great line. Um, so that I see in my office more than ever before. What I mean by that is young people coming to my office um, saying to me that, they know they have to get married. They're not sure why they have to, they're just doing it to do it, but they don't want a marriage like their parents, mm -hmm. but they don't know what kind of marriage they want. And if they do know what kind of marriage they want, Ellie, it is so fantastical. Right. It, is so, it, is so, it is so beyond anything that marriage is supposed to give you that I sit there and I listen to them and I have to just not, you know, like go, <laughs> and start laughing in the middle of the session. Um, and, and, um, you know, Ellie, you and I have talked about this. I think the, the 
uh, a huge solution to a lot of what I see in my office in marriages that come in 15, 20, 25 years later would have been some sort of a, a comprehensive foundational program for young couples who are during the engagement courtship phase when they're more curious, they're more playful, there's more humor, there isn't too much water under the bridge to do serious work on family of origin issues before getting married. What most young people do is they leave their families and they go, la, 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 I'm going to do it differently, la, 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 I've read some self-help books and, and they rush into, the, they go into their marriage and they just hope with effort, with effort, they're going to do something different. And like, we'll it just, work it, it out. Yeah, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I would say 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, our grandparents, the utility of marriage was stronger, meaning that there, were, that, um, uh, uh, there was a, uh, a practical part of marriage right. where one, ha one had the income, one didn't. These days, that's all gone. I mean, mo most of the women in my practice are making more than, than the men. So uh, at least that's what I'm saying. So um, there is no real functional reason to marry. And a lot of young people are in my office going, like, I don't even know if this institution is worth it anymore. And that's, that's a problem, I think. It's a problem right. for our society going forward that marriage is getting such a bum rap. Right. I think that's so interesting because so many people would make the argument that the only reason for marriage now is some sort of religious paradigm or religious commitment. But I, you know, one of the things that I've always found fascinating is that you know, on one foot, you've always maintained that marriage is a growth machine, that the potential for self-work is exponentially higher once you're in a committed relationship. And I think that's, you know, maybe that's something that we'll dig into maybe next week. Sure. <laughs> well, I, speaking of which, um, I think, I don't know if there's any other character really that um, uh, I personally would want to delve into in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, or maybe I'm just itching to get to Pretty in Pink. But uh, okay, let's do Pretty in Pink next week. I'm totally into that. Excellent. All right. Okay. So for those Pretty of you who are watching now or watching later, if you get a chance to rewatch Pretty in Pink, I think it's actually on Netflix right now. Um, I own all five films. Okay. Awesome. So if you get a chance to watch it, we will do Pretty in Pink next week. Very exciting. And I think what we'll Thank do is, you. Ellie, we'll, 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 we'll do like, um, we'll, Pretty in Pink will be a few episodes. Like there's The Father, yeah. there's Molly Ringwald. Ducky never talks about his parents, but we'll have some fun with it. Okay, amazing. Okay. I love it. It's so awesome. Thanks so Thanks. much, Avram. Have a great week. See you next week. Thanks, Thanks everyone Thanks, for joining. Ellie.